placed it comfortably. So, good morning everyone. Uh, day five of the session. Um, and we have half a day tomorrow. One more day in the realm of timelessness. So, so far we've covered topics like Zen and the creative spirit and Zen and the Bodhisattva spirit. Often on the last day of session I like to talk about the precepts because they're a good sort of gateway into um, everyday life and how we bring practice into everyday life. So let's call this talk Zen and the Moral Spirit. Now, put in context, you've probably heard me say this many times before, but Zen practice can be seen as being made up of three um, elements. And that when you break down the Eightfold Noble Path, you can see they fall into these three categories. One is insight, spiritual insight. One is meditation. And one is ethics or morality, precepts, practice of precepts. And if you only take up one of these practices, you don't have a complete practice. If you take up two, that's better, but you don't have a complete practice. It's when you take up the three of them and it's a synergy of the three together, then you have a complete whole practice. And you could, you could read books on Zen and Buddhism and philosophy and you could develop intellectual insight, which is useful. But if you don't practice meditation, and the precepts, you don't really bring it to life. It's not really in your bones, as Joko said, it's still up here. Uh-huh. But it's useful. Um, and if you just practice the precepts, you know, you didn't practice meditation with a view to insight, then you can tend to start to take the precepts too literally and you're not really embodying them and you're applying them in a very rigid right and wrong kind of way without any intelligence to it or without any wisdom or compassion to it. And if you just take up meditation, which is, you know, central to our practice, and you just meditate, well, you, without the precepts, you know, and without <coughs> cultivating insight, well, you can learn to develop very deep states of samadhi um, and calmness and so on. Um, but that's about as far as it goes. It has no no application to your relationships or your everyday life. It's just a nice place to escape to. So you need the synergy of all those together, you know, to have a complete practice. Now, one thing that underlies the precepts is the um, quality or the experience of value. You know, value is, is like an appreciation of of life and things in life. And um, value as a entity um, could be seen in many different ways. Um, but the way we see it within the Dharma is that, that everything has its intrinsic value, right? It's not about um, an instrumental value or, you know, that, that tree is good because it gives me wood, you know, to burn the fire. You know, the tree has value in itself. So values from a Dharma perspective is not so much about projecting values onto things or inventing values, but seeing the intrinsic value 
in things, others and self, you know, nature, consciousness, experience. Um, and the precepts are a pathway towards um, deepening that sense of appreciation of life. Now, usually um, Dharma teachers, you know, give Dharma talks in terms of stories, koans, Buddhist texts and so on. Um, we don't usually rely on science, but I'm going to rely on science to neuroscience because I think it's very informative in helping us really understand um, the precepts. So there's many different pathways to truth or understanding and science is one of them. It's not the only one, but it's one. Um, but in the research they've done on this right-left hemisphere hypothesis in the brain, and by the way, um, Nature doesn't create things just by accident. You know, why do we have a right hemisphere and a left hemisphere with the corpus callosum in the middle? Is it just just for show, just for aesthetics? You know, nature has a reason for doing these things and they do, the evidence seems to be that they clearly, not just Ian McGilchrist's view, but the view of many people like Roger Sperry who um, won a Nobel Science prize many years ago for his work on the right and left hemisphere. There's a clear body of evidence that they have different functions. And uh, what they've found through the research is that the right hemisphere is superior, has a superior involvement in making moral judgments than the left hemisphere. Um, it has a superior function in inhibition like it's negative impulses, destructive impulses, and it also has um, a greater function in pro-social behaviours or experiences like compassion, empathy, seeing things for the good of the all, for the for the good of, of everyone, etc. And um, and the left hemisphere is dominant um, around antisocial behaviours. Right? It's quite clear you know, from the evidence that this occurs. And it's almost in a way, we don't want to make it too black and white, but in a way from the evidence, the left hemisphere appears to be the seat of the self-centred dream. <laughs> um, but let's not be too down on it because the thing we need to be clear about in the complexity of this is you need both hemispheres, right? But the, the right hemisphere needs to be primary. It's through the right hemisphere that you have direct experience and you see things holistically. And then the left hemisphere with its words and concepts breaks things down into bits and pieces and words and representations. And it's really good on the tools. You know, it's really good at, at, at manipulating concepts, you know, and taking things apart to see how they work and, and using using tools, whether they, they could be tools like a scalpel, you know, or it could be a tool like a gun, but it's good at using tools and manipulating, and, but we need that as well to live. But when the left hemisphere takes over and it's caught in this conceptual representation, grasping, bringing things down to bits and pieces and believing its own bullshit, right, then we have a problem. Right? And so this really describes what the kind of self-centred dream is, that grasping, thinking mind that thinks it knows it all and is right. 
So the left hemisphere is not inclusive of the right, um, but the right hemisphere is inclusive of the left to create a asymmetrical whole. And it appears that as we practice, um, if you look at the, the evidence around um, spirituality, not just meditation, but spirituality and neuroscience, people who've, who've been involved in spirituality for a long time and meditation, their right hemisphere is far more developed than the average person. The insular is thicker. You know, there's different pathways and characteristics of it which are just more developed far more. Mm-hmm. So something happens, not surprisingly, to our brain um, when we do this practice. And by the way, that's not a statement in reductionism. <laughs> that's a statement in, you know, conscious practice actually changes the way our brain works in, in a much more functioning way. So um, the left hemisphere is, is concerned with power. Um, the right hemisphere is concerned with affiliation, uh, with compassion and empathy. And, um, and when they do research into um, psychopathy, what psychopathy is, is, is the, um, the disorder of being a psychopath, you know, someone, someone who's antisocial. Um, the, the research shows that there's an atrophy in their right hemisphere, which leads to that kind of behaviour. The other issue that goes along with morality is the emotion of guilt. Now, now guilt plays an important function in morality. It's got, it gets very bad press these days. People don't want to know about guilt. They associate it with sin, etc. But it actually plays a very important part because it's through guilt that we inhibit, right? That we we have an impulse comes up and we can stop it, you know, because we think it's destructive. We don't feel too good if we're a functioning human being. We don't feel too good. We feel guilty if we've hurt someone, right? That's remorse. That's that's good social behaviour. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't have guilt, then you're suffering from um, psychopathy. So it's a valuable thing. But um, there's an interesting statement about the pointer of guilt, right? Now, people who tend to be prone to depression, um, in a sense, they're they're over-functioning on that right-hand side. So they're clearly tuned into the sense of responsibility for their actions, but they tend to be over-guilty, like they they tend towards being over-responsible. Um, when things go wrong. Um, with people have a left hemisphere bias, tend to be paranoid, distrusting, suspicious, like you get in schizophrenia and so on. And what goes along with those conditions is that the, the finger of blame is out there. You know, like if, with paranoia, it goes along with paranoia. It's out there. Uh-huh. It's not in here. Problem's out there. Um, but with over excessive depression, it's it's in here, and we need to get some kind of sense of balance in that. And as Emma Gilchrist says, this tendency towards the problems out there is a characteristic of our modern society. 
um, antisocial behaviour like uh, anger, hostility, aggression is more of a left hemisphere, front left hemisphere um, experience. Now, something interesting that came to mind when I was thinking about this too and reading about it and preparing it, I remember from years ago I read that there was a, I think it was a Christian group like back in about the 19th, 18th century on the east coast of, of the US around New York and so on. And it was called something like Transcendental Christianity or something like that. Maybe they were associated with the Quakers. But they recognised, as I think people have in previous centuries, that um, without the eyes, um, that there's kind of spiritual eyes and it's actually where the pupils are dilated. And, and that's a right hemisphere type of connection um, where the, when, the white, when the eyes are wide open, it's like they're, they're trying to take in the whole and they're kind of open and receptive, you know. And, and if, you, if you reflect on it, when you see people with eye, with, where their eyes are, their, their pupils are dilated, you kind of tend to trust them, you know, like you're drawn towards it. And the opposite is, all, is also true, is that um, slitty eyes, you know, like narrowed eyes, do you know, that's like, that's left hemisphere functioning. You know, it's like narrow down to that thing there and what can I get out of it and how I can, how I can use it. Mm-hmm. And we don't trust people with slitty eyes. I, I'm sorry, I'm, I shouldn't, that's not a reference to Asian, by the way. <laughs> yeah, sorry. But I don't mean it in that sense. I mean it in the sense of the, 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 uh, the pupils narrowing down. Right? And uh, so uh, that's also consistent with all of this. And so what underlies morality is, is the, the discovery of value and the cultivation of trust right, and harmony. And when our, when our behaviours are pro-social behaviours, um, that's what we're doing. We're creating harmony and trust. And when an antisocial behaviour is a poor moral decision, actually, they, it's not appreciative of value. Everything's just instrumental, including people, you know, and it breaks down trust. Now, let me go through the precepts again. And uh, on reflection in this, um, as much as I really like my friend Diane Rosetto's book on um, uh, waking up to what you do, and it's a really good text, but on reflection, what it's trying to do is frame the precepts in the positive. Right? They're usually framed in the negative, you know, no anger, no lying, etc. And Diane frames them in the positive, I take up the way of telling the truth, right? So it's got a positive connotation to it, which is fine. But if we, what's important is that we look at both sides when it comes to um, practising the precepts, and not just one. So when things are framed in the negative, they're focusing on inhibition. Don't do this, you know. It's not good, it's not healthy, inhibition. But when we frame them in the positive, as Diane does, it's cultivating pro-moral behaviour, pro-social behaviour, right? 
Now, my perspective is we need both. Just like you need the, the right and the left hemisphere, you need both. And there's a tendency for people these days to really polarise around things. You know, well, you, you should come down hard, you know, with strong fundamental moral views kind of thing. This is wrong, you know. Um, and then you get people reacting to that, like people in, in Buddhism saying, oh, it's all love and kindness, you know, we just need to develop empathy and so on. Well, they're both true. You know, they, they both need to be there in balance. You need the inhibition and you need the cultivation of the compassion and the empathy and so on, which then moral decisions become more, more natural when you're there. Um, remember I was saying the other day um, one of the concerns I have about Western Buddhism it's focusing too much on the, the self-love, being kind to yourself aspect of it which is fine but I don't believe it's focusing on the inhibition and the self-critiquing as well and they're not in conflict they just they harmonise with one another if you use them together and it's the nature of one way of understanding free will, it's not actually a force to make you do something. It's seen more as um, the ability to say no to something. So we get all these impulses come up and it's like feelings of anger or resentment or joy or whatever it might be. And, and free will is that ability to go, ah, no, that, that doesn't feel good. Red light. Let's stop here and let's just stop and not say that or act on that and pause and reflect before we do anything. So it needs a red light. But if you're only over on red light, well, you just only inhibit. And you need a green light as well. You know, so when you have a feeling of empathy, compassion, um, good-naturedness, trusted, you know, green light, you know, go, 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 go. Uh-huh. So you need, you, you need your green light and your red light. Uh-huh. Um, if you only do the loving kindness stuff, then you, you've only got a green light. If you do the other, you've only got a red light. Yeah. Be a good traffic cop. <laughs> green lights and red lights. So let me remind you of the precepts as they're framed in the negative and in the positive according to Norman Fisher. Not to kill, but to nurture life. Not to steal, but to receive what is offered as a gift. Not to misuse sexuality, but to be caring and faithful in intimate relationships. Not to lie, but to be truthful. Not to intoxicate with substances or doctrines, but to promote clarity and awareness. Um, can I just correct a word from my talk yesterday? I was talking about ideology can be dangerous, like doctrines, and I said that anger can be dangerous too, and the two together is a bad mix. Um, a better word than anger would be resentment, um, because anger in itself can be a creative energy, you know, that can help us challenge social injustice and so on. But resentment is harboured anger, which we'll come to down here. So, not to intoxicate with substances or doctrines, but to promote clarity and awareness. Not to speak of others' faults, 
but to speak out of loving kindness. Not to praise self at the expense of others, but to be modest. Not to be possessive in anything, but to be generous. Not to harbour anger, harbour it becomes resentment, um, but to forgive. Not to do anything to diminish the three, not to do anything to diminish the triple treasures, but to support and nurture it. Um, that's referring to Buddha, Dharma and Sangha in, in, the, in the Buddhist tradition. But I prefer to word that one as not to do anything to diminish the sacred, which covers all religions and all forms of spirituality. Now, in terms of practising the precepts, um, one, one of the things I want to share with you that's um, emerging in the Ordinary Mind Melbourne group that I'm the teacher of um, is that with my encouragement and with my support, um, they're actually starting a precepts, precepts group where they're going to study the precepts together. And um, they've got eight people in the group signed up to do it. And we've worked through how we're going to do it. And it's going to be a closed group because it requires building a lot of trust between people. Um, like in any group therapy group, it's a closed group because there's a lot of very vulnerable, deep sharing goes long as you go through looking at each precept and how it works in your life. And it's a supportive group where it'll have sort of input from the Dharma and people sharing as well. And then they invite me in every now and then for me as a teacher to give some input into it if they're stuck or they want some extra kind of view there. But it's mainly a peer group experience. And um, so they've got the jump on us, you know, they're, they're ahead of us, you know. Um, and uh, I would encourage something like that to happen here as well. More of a, a peer experience with, with me having some input into it. I think that would be a, a very good way of people deepening their, their practice of the precepts and building Sangha as well. And then at the end of that, um, the end of that uh, group process, um, people may choose or not choose to want to formally do the, um, go through the precepts with me as a formality, as a, as a ceremony where you take the precepts. And um, in the Ordinary Mind Zen School, we, make, we don't make too much of a, a big deal out of it um, in the sense of when you traditionally go through taking the precepts from a teacher, um, you make yourself a rakasu, you know, and, uh, and you make it yourself and then you wear that, you know, over your robe. It's a kind of a Buddhist bib we refer it to and uh, with, your, with your Dharma name on it. Um, so we, we, I mean, I respect that. I've been through that ceremony and I have a, uh, a rocket suit, but I don't wear it. Um, but in the Ordinary Mind Zen School, which is more in affinity with the way I teach, um, we're not going to make a rocket suit or, or wear one. Um, but people from other traditions who've gone through that are welcome to do it here. Um, but we, it's not going to be a matter of wearing one and I'm not going to be giving anyone a Dharma name. Right? Um, well, they are going to be given a Dharma name. Um, if their name was Diana, 
Well, the Dharma name becomes Diana. <laughs> That's your Dharma name. You don't need a special name. Your original nature, your original name is your Dharma name. Um, so that's our ordinary mind style. Uh, but I would encourage that to to um, to occur. Um, at the end of the day, as I said earlier on, um, precepts are an essential part of the practice. Um, and what's what's at the basis of it is that. Um, all life is relational and all, all life is a process. And this is something that's been understood centuries ago through Taoism and Zen and through various other spiritual traditions. And our purpose in life is to be in harmony with those relationships. And that means, um, it means to be in harmony with, with something is to be in a relation of trust you know? and, and to, to break that trust you know, creates disharmony. So the whole precepts are around creating a, a kind of a, a trusting spirit you know, wherever you go. And if you do that, if you, if you follow the precepts you know, in, your, in your family life and your everyday life and your work life, then without intentionally doing so, you actually generate trust with other people. You, you help to create a, a, a culture of trust. Um, people just trust you because they know that you're not, they know from experience that you don't gossip about other people or put other people down or, or self-aggrandise or whatever. And people end up trusting you more in that situation. And if you've got a lot of people doing that, then you create a you create a wonderful workspace for a wonderful family, or a wonderful sangha like we have here. Um, so they're very they're very essential um, to our life. Okay, thank you. <laughs>